0: This is a podcast from the Muhideen Ibn Arabi Society. For more information, visit our website www.ibnarabisociety.org Let me begin by um, mentioning the things that I want to talk about in this lecture, the practical part of which comes in toward the end. But I'll begin by... um, the biblical and Quranic story of Moses asking God to show him his face and God's response by saying that you shall not see me in the Quran and in the Bible and also in the Bible nobody sees me and lives. I will then dwell on Ibn al-Arabi's interpretation of the concept of the face and see how a story that was brought by Jabir bin Hayyan in Kitab al-Khawas may be useful in illustrating this interpretation. I found out that, or it's in in my opinion that this story is derived from the Greek myth of Medusa, the snakey-haired woman who turned anyone who looked at her face to stone. I found out that the interpretation that a modern scholar provides for the image of Medusa is very similar to the rather paradoxical interpretation that Ibn al-Arabi provides for images in mirrors. Try to see how. Well, in the uh, Greek myth, the Greek hero used a shield as a mirror to capture the image of Medusa. And uh, the, the interpretation of this color is very similar to Ibn arabis interpretation. I will see how those interpretations can be useful in restoring The paradoxical nature of our world's religions, Um, that is, before they underwent the process of, I don't know if the use of the word is correct, stonifying or stonification, turning to stones. Religions depicted in this way as images drawn in or through the heart or mirror of a human being who was created in the image of the real. I will also draw a comparison between Ibn al-Arabi's solution of religious conflict and the solution that was provided uh, by modern scholar John Hick. And i also try to see how Ibn al-Arabi's concept of unity and difference is different from our postmodernists. So let me start by Moses' story. As, as God in the Bible summons Moses to descend to Egypt to take out the children of Israel, Moses tells God that his people will ask him about his name. And God tells him that he should tell them that his name is and will forever be, I will be as I will be. In Hebrew, or I shall be as I shall be. Hearing this rather strange name, Moses tells God that his people will say that it is untrue that I shall be as I shall be did show himself to you. Why? Because I will be refers to the future. while did show himself to you refers to the past. So it cannot be. This was the time that God, after failing to, to show Moses his essence, it was the time for him to show his, him his acts, beginning with the turning of the staff to a snake and followed by greater miracles, including the miracle of the splitting of the waters of the sea. Even after all these miracles, was, Moses was still unsatisfied, and now he asks to see, to sh- asks God to show him His face. And God says in the Bible, "You will not be able to see My face, for no human being can see My face and live. I will put you in a cleft of the rock." According to one interpretation, He put him in a kind of a cave in the mountain and shield you with my hand until my glory has passed. Then I will take away my hand, and you will see my back, but my face may not be seen. For Ibn al-Arabi, face signifies the essence of God, or the real, which is the joining together of the manifest and the non-manifest faces of reality. Now, as William Chittick has pointed out, According to Ibn al-Arabi, our knowledge of the essence amounts to knowing that there is an essence and that we cannot know about, we can know nothing about it. This is the only thing that we can know about it is that we cannot know anything about it. However, Chitik emphasizes that Ibn al-Arabi's repeated warnings against thinking about the essence of God doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about it. If that was his meaning, Chitik says, then he would be contradicting himself constantly. Why? Because he talks about the essence of God all the time. In my opinion, this sort of qualification is very significant to distinguish Ibn al-Arabi's position concerning the knowledge of the essence of God from all sorts of skeptical positions toward transcendent essences, Uh, For example, the position of Immanuel Kant, the uh, German philosopher, in relation to what he calls the thing in itself, which is and will remain forever unknown, that is, in itself, and including, following and including with our postmodern thought, which refuses any talk about such transcendent essences. In my opinion, it is safe to say that (coughs) there is a certain ambiguity ...in Ibn al-Arabi's position concerning knowledge of the real or the essence of God. And in what follows, I will try shortly to um, illustrate this ambiguity... ...by making a reference to two places in the Futuhat. In his reference to God's warning to Moses that in the Qur'an, lantarani, you shall not see me... ...Ibn al-Arabi says that these words negate future acts... He, he explains, and I read in Chitiks translation, by the way, all the translations are Chittick's except for one which I will indicate when I come to it. As for him who does not see me in the present state, while he is gazing upon me, he is even more unlikely to see me in the state of the final issue. He will see me, but he will not recognize that I am the object of his search. He seeks me through the mark, alama. Is this anything other than ignorance of me? Mark, alama, is to be found in the world, alam. Um, Those who seek to see God as identical with a certain state in the world, certain state of his manifestation in the world, will deny him when they see him in a different state. This seems to be actually the fate of all servants, all knowers. Since Ibn al Arabi says, the created thing knows nothing of its own states save what it has at the moment. That is, the knower knows only what he has at the momentary moment. However, and this is to explain the ambiguity that I mentioned. Uh, Ibn al-Arabi emphasizes that some of the servants are not subject to this limitation. In the sense that they see the state, the present state, but somehow they can see also across the states. Let me read his words. When one of them sees the real in a form that he does not recognize, he knows that the real has disclosed himself to him. ...in a form whose moment has not arrived. Hence, he knows the form before he enters into it. As I said, those knowers have the ability to see across the states. And they have this ability because, Ibn al-Arabi tells us, because they have preserved the root. And he tells us exactly how to preserve the root. In order to preserve the root, the servant has to draw his gaze from the real, toward himself, and see or know himself as the real saw or knew him in his state of fixity, as when he was a fixed entity, in which state he resembled a perfectly polished mirror, in which the real discloses or manifests himself, and then the servant sees himself as real saw him, that is, in the image of the real. Another place in which the ambiguity in question shows clearly is in Ibn al Arabi's interpretation of to the Quranic words, each thing is perishing except its face. Now, this sentence is in a sense self contradictory. Why? Because Ibn al Arabi also says that face is actually both the manifest and the non-manifest faces of reality. So, face is actually everything. So, saying that each thing is perishing except its face is like saying each thing is and is not perishing. Which comes in two contradictory statements by Ibn al-Arabi himself. In one statement he says, non-existence, is essential to the possible thing, such that each thing will be perishing forever, as each always has been. This is one statement. But, he makes a distinction now, between the individual who acquires the face, that allows him only in front of himself, and the individual who can see also in front of himself, and also behind himself. That is, and he says, he can see in all directions and he is he has become all face and he is not bound by the gaze from whatever direction comes the one who desires to make him perish annihilate him he finds no path to him because he is unveiled to him now Let me explain this meaning by making a reference to the story that I mentioned in the introduction to this lecture. This is a story short one by Jabir bin Hayyan. He brought it in Kitab al-Khawas. Let me read it. They say that in a certain valley there were snakes that once they caught sight of an animal, that animal died immediately. Their sight kills simply. They say also that in that valley there was a great beast whose eyes were like gulfs. As the snake sought to kill it, the beast lifted up its eyes, like its eyelids, toward the head so that its side did not fall on the snake and its eyes became like pure polished mirrors. The snake saw itself in the mirror and died. Now, the object of vision or knowledge was not accomplished in this case because the root, the knower, was not preserved. Because the the vision of this animal was partial, it ended in a dead product, in the death of the animal. When the eye is not bound, the real, signified here by the snake, dies. Now, this death is not negative, since the death of the snake symbolizes in my interpretation the entrance or inclusion of the infinite real in the finite vision of the realizer. And I will explain this by making a reference to the myth from which I said I believe this story was taken. This is the Greek myth of Medusa. the snaky herd woman who killed anyone who looked at her face to stone turned it to stone in the Greek myth the Greek hero had to accomplish the mission of decapitating Medusa's head and then for those who know the story exploiting the face in order to overcome his enemies just hold it and his enemies will become stones (coughs) now This mission, however, proved to be difficult, if not impossible. And I will use the words of a modern scholar to explain, his name is uh, Jean-Pierre Vernant, to explain the source of the difficulty and also his analysis, the analysis that he provides for the solution that was found for the difficulty. How is one to see something when the sight of it cannot be endured? See it without glancing at it and without falling under its glance. You see, some people make a mistake. They think that they looked at the face of Medusa and after that they died. No, nobody can look and after that dies. They even died before looking. So, in other words, how is it possible to make scene, to visualize the face it is impossible to see? and the eye that is forbidden to the gaze. The answer was found by gazing not at the face or eyes of the Medusa, but at the reflection presented on the polished surface of the bronze shield, which Athena uses as a mirror to capture the image of the monster. Next, Fernand provides a rather paradoxical characterization of the image of Medusa. The image in the shield or in the mirror must be different from the face of Medusa. Why? Because it's simply we can we look at it and it doesn't turn us to stone. In this sense, the image is not Medusa. But, and here he borrows a word from Plato, he says that there is a sort of sympathy between the, and he calls Medusa the real. Between the real. And its image, there are affinities and means of passing from one to the other. And passing from, this is also a reminder of Ibn al-Arabi, what is called Tabir, abur, passing. So, the image of Medusa actually is and is not Medusa which is very similar to the characterization that Ibn al-Arabi provides for images in mirrors. Let me read his characterization. This is in my translation. A person who sees his image in the mirror knows decisively that he has perceived his form in some respect and that he has not perceived his form in some other respect. Then, if he says, I saw my form, I did not see my form, he will be neither a truth teller nor a liar. What is then the truth of the perceived form? The form is negated and affirmed, existent and non-existent, known and unknown. And then in the last sentence he says that as we realize our difficulty in knowing the nature of the form, of the image in the mirror, which is something that is to be found in this world, imagine how must be difficult our knowledge of the creator of the world, of the real. In his characterization of the image of Medusa, Vernon says that the image establishes a connection or a bridge between this world and the world beyond, between the visible and the invisible, namely the face of Medusa. Likewise, we can say in Ibn arabis example that the consideration of the relationship that holds between the image and the mirror and its origin in this world can be indicator, an indicator to the sort of relation that holds between things in this world or the world as a whole and the real. In this sense, the consideration of the nature, the paradoxical nature of the image and the mirror adds to our knowledge of the real or the relationship between the real and the world, which I must admit must be inconsistent or must seem inconsistent with the last sentence of the uh, of the passage that I cited, in which Ibn al-Arabi says that as we realize the difficulty about knowing the nature of the image, we must understand how much more deficient or difficult must be our knowledge of God However, I think that what Ibn al-Arabi says um, can be interpreted in the line of the words in the New Testament where uh, Jesus says, and I, I cite, If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Which, I mean, the simple explanation of that is that you people are so ignorant that you don't know even the things in this world. How can I possibly now start talking to you about things that exist beyond, heavenly things? I think this explanation is too simplified. I rather see in these words an allusion to the paradoxical reality, the paradoxical nature of the very reality that we take for granted. The interesting thing is that even as people are led even by, as if by the force of logic to realize the, na- the paradoxical nature of existence or reality, even then they refuse to believe. Even as they are convinced by the force of logic to consider that the image is and is not the origin, is and is not its paradox, it's, it's incomprehensible to them. Still they refuse to believe. Um, this logical um, necessity. Likewise, people, it's natural for them to reflect on social or existential situations as this or that, or to reflect on people as this Jew or that Muslim or that Christian. Not only that Ibn al-Arabi thinks that this reflection is natural, He thinks that even when people declare their belief or religion in this sense superior to others, even then, he has his positive explanation for that. First, talking about difference and existence, Ibn al-Arabi says that difference is the root of existence. However, he believes that there is, he calls it, a penetration of divine unity in existence. So, I declare that my religion is superior to yours because of the penetration of divine unity in existence. His words are the following. For due to the penetration of divine oneness in existence, each person says, I am the real. As the moon says, when it's full with the light of the sun, I am the sun. Now, from here comes the problem of religious Conflict, which is the outcome of religious diversity. A diversity of different religions, each of them says that I am the one. In his book, which was published in 1989, An Interpretation of Religion, John Hick, John Hick, provides a solution for religious conflict. He actually mentions Ibn al-Arabi and cites him in his book. And he uses his uh, distinction between God as the real or the essence and God as manifested through his names. Um, John Hicks says that there are two sorts of religious claims. There are what he calls factual or historical claims. Claims that have to do with information that, certain information that the believer holds. Those claims, he says, should not generate religious conflict. Why? Because potentially we can do our search and find the facts and settle the conflict. There are also, there is also the sort of religious claims that are related to the nature of the real, to the essence of God. He says that also those claims should not generate religious conflict. Why? Because um, the nature of the real, much like Immanuel Kant's uh, thing in itself, is and will remain forever in itself. We will never know the nature of the real or the essence of God. That's why no matter what a Muslim or Christian or Jew make a a claim about the essence of God, we will never be able to verify those claims. That's why, as the German philosopher said, I had to put reason aside in order to make room for belief. And now Hick says that, well, that's why, because we are ignorant about the nature of the essence of God, we have to respect and tolerate the differences between us concerning it. Well, in a major sense, he is saying that we are one, in our ignorance of the real that's why we have to respect and tolerate differences between us. Notice how he establishes respect for difference on the basis of what I call a negative unity. Unity in the ignorance of the real. I believe that Ibn al-Arabi, for Ibn al-Arabi it's important to realize the face of religion that is related to its existential situation, what distinguishes it from other religions. But the other part is also important, uh, which is missing completely in Immanuel Kant, also in, in, uh, in John Hicks' theory. It's what is what Ibn Arabi calls the specific face and knowledge of the specific face, knowledge of unity, knowledge of the face that connects each one of us and each religion of us with the real, if you can make balance between the specific face that connects religion with its existential situation and the specific face that connects it with the real, then there you get the unity or the difference or the synthesis between them that, that we need. Such balance, I think, is completely missing in uh, a John Higgs' uh, theory. Acknowledging difference is only the first step toward the achievement of unity. If we stop with this acknowledgement, like our postmodernists do, then not only that we will not achieve positive unity, but we will be even more and more distanced from it. Moreover, and th- this is the last point that I want to explain in this talk, and um, adherence. So this sort of difference becomes, in my opinion, very dangerously, um, forms actually a new object of a new religion. It's a religion of difference. Difference will become, as it has become, in my opinion, our God. Let me make this point clear by making a reference to a book that is called The Future of Religion, Richard Rorty and Gianni Vattimo. Um, The book is written by Richard Rorty and Vattimo. Uh, Richard Rorty is an American philosopher and Vattimo is an Italian thinker. And let me read from the words of the editor of this book in which he describes um, Rorty's postmodernist project and then he describes what he calls the man of postmodernity and uh, he uh, also describes what he calls an anti-essentialist religion. And notice that he um, gives many praises to all those things that once, not many, not many years ago, we thought about them like negative things, like difference and impermanency and plurality and all those things have become really an object for praise. <coughs> And I read from the introduction. Rorty observes that objective metaphysics has dissolved. The way for an anti-essentialist religion was finally opened. This religion, grounded exclusively on private motivation, is destined to realize the promise of the gospel That from now on, God regards us not as servants, but as friends. According to those uh, postmodernists, this is actually the meaning of crucifixion. That God sacrificed himself in order to give lead to man. This is the essence of the new religion. This man of postmodernity, if he submits fully to the weak condition of existence may finally learn to to live together with himself and with his own finitude, accepting the divided, unstable, and plural condition that belongs to our being, distant to difference, impermanency, and to multiplicity, means being able to actively practice solidarity, charity, and irony. The man who withdraws his attention from the supernatural world and concentrates on this world and this time, exerts himself to realize the ideals of pluralism and tolerance, and to prevent any particular vision of the world from imposing itself by means of the authority attributed to it. Now, Richard Rorty in this book explains to us what is meant or what what those thinkers mean by tolerance. I think this is the most important concept in in this declaration. He explains this by giving two examples. First, he says that there are people like himself who simply do not have a musical ear for essentialist questions. Questions such as what really exists, what are the limits of human knowledge, how does language hook up with reality, Rorty says that we have to tolerate those people, which I said, he is one of them. From the other side, he says that we have to tolerate our world's religions. In his words, religion is not to be objected to as long as it is privatized, as long as institutions do not attempt to rally the faithful behind political proposals, And as long as believers agree to follow a policy of live and let live. Now, it was the same Rorty who says in the same book, almost in the same place, and I read his words, the idea of a dialogue with Islam is pointless. There is not going to be one between the mullahs of the Islamic world and the democratic West. Now, you might think that I want to say that his view is morally incorrect or logically inconsistent with his principle of tolerance. I think that his view is perfectly moral and perfectly or correctly logical. My problem with such views as his is that simply I think that they do not take us anywhere. The best that they can do is to describe a situation of difference where each one of us and each religion of ours sits in its cell-like and we don't have any dialogue between each other. More importantly, it was the uh, treatment of essentialist questions that led thinkers such as Ibn al-Arabi to achieving the highest values of the very anti-essentialist religion that Rorty promotes. And, and this is the important thing and go much beyond that, achieve much beyond that. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Ibn Arabi Society. Please visit us again for our monthly downloads.